Some of you will be familiar with Google Earth, probably much more familiar with it than I am. You can open your computer, and on your screen you can see a satellite image of the whole Earth. Then you can zoom closer and closer, until eventually one country comes into view. Then one region, one town, one street, and finally one house. Maybe with your wife in the back garden hanging up her washing. Around 4,000 years ago, God did something very similar. Of all the people living on the earth, God chose to zoom in on one of them. Just one. A man living in a tent. The man's name was Abram. And the book of Genesis tells us this. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram left as the Lord had told him. God zeroed in on this one man and concentrated his blessing on this one man in order to one day bring his blessing to the whole earth. That was God's promise. And Abram believed God. He trusted God. He showed his trust by obeying God. And God changed his name from Abram, which means exalted father, to Abraham, which means father of many. And the Bible tells us Abraham became the father of two kinds of people. Abraham today has many physical descendants. Those are men and women with Jewish ancestry. And Abraham today has many spiritual descendants. Those are men and women who have faith like Abraham. Some of his physical descendants are also his spiritual descendants. Christians from a Jewish background. And millions who are not his physical descendants are his spiritual descendants. Christians from a Gentile background. Us. Abraham is the father of many in two senses of that word. And this morning we're going to think about God's plans for both Abraham's physical children and his spiritual children. In just a moment we're going to read in Romans chapter 11, which you'll find on page 1138 and in the large print 1760. But first let me remind you that this is part two. Because we started looking at chapter 11 last week. We learnt in the first part of chapter 11 about the situation of Abraham's physical descendants in the present. They are disobedient and obstinate towards God. Those are God's own words. And out of that disobedient and obstinate people, God has graciously chosen some in the present. 
and he has justly hardened the rest. There are Jewish men and women who trust in Jesus today, but they are the minority of Jews today. However, we also saw last week that Israel's present situation is not going to be her final situation. Paul pointed to a day when not just the minority, but the fullness of Israel will be reconciled to God through Christ. That was last week, and now this morning, Paul tells us more about this plan of God. And as we read this, you'll notice it has plenty to say to us Gentiles as well. And it has plenty to say about the God who lies behind all this. So follow with me from Romans 11, verse 16, down to the end of chapter 11. If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature, and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited, Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the Gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. 
Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. This is God's word. It comes to us through the pen of the Apostle Paul. And first of all, Paul talks about the one people of God, Jews and Gentiles. And the key thing to realize here is that Paul is talking to Gentiles, non-Jews like you and me. How do we know that? Because back in verse 13, he said, I am talking to you Gentiles. The church in Rome was made up of Jews and Gentiles. All of them saved by God's grace, received through faith in Jesus Christ. And earlier in the letter, Paul spent a good deal of time talking sternly to the Jews. If they were tempted to feel proud, he reminded them in strong terms that their Jewish heritage could not save them. And their Jewish law-keeping couldn't save them. In chapter 3, he asked the question, do Jews have any advantage with God? There's no question. We have a great heritage, Paul said. God blessed our ancestor Abraham. We've been privileged to grow up with the Old Testament scriptures. But does that give us an advantage with God? Here's Paul's answer. Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. Paul wants to make it very clear. The only way to be forgiven and accepted by God is through God's grace. Received through faith in Jesus. We could say that in the early part of the letter, Paul worked hard to put the Jewish believers in their place. And now, he's going to put us Gentiles in our place. If the Jews were in danger of feeling superior to the Gentiles because of their Old Testament heritage, the Gentiles were in danger of looking down on the Jews. Because as a nation, they seem to be cut off from God in the present. So here in chapter 11, Paul turns to the Gentiles and says, let's get some things straight. He began to do that in verses 1 to 15. And now he continues in verse 16. If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. What's Paul trying to tell us? Well, the word holy is used a couple of different ways in the Bible. It can mean spotless, pure and without sin. And it can also mean set apart for God's use. So, for example, in the Old Testament, when God gave instructions for the worship tent called the tabernacle, he said the shovel used for taking the ashes out of the altar, was holy. How can a shovel be holy? 
Well, God was not saying the shovel was perfect. He was saying it had a specific part to play in the temple worship. It was set apart for that. The priest wasn't to take it home and use it in his flower bed. It was set apart for God's special use. And that's the way holy is being used here in verse 16. When people brought an offering of flour to God, part of it was burnt on the altar. And the rest was given to the priests to eat. The whole offering was set apart for God's purposes. Now we still don't know why Paul is telling us this. But notice what he goes on to say in verse 16. If the root is holy, so are the branches. If the root is set apart for God's purposes, then the branches are too. And now Paul is going to explain his point. He's going to show that God's choice of Abraham means he has plans for Abraham's physical descendants. They are set apart for God's purposes in human history. And Paul uses the illustration of one tree with two kinds of branches. And here is my attempt to help us visualize Paul's illustration. We'll look at this before we then read it in the text. We start with a tree, just one. Paul visualizes God's people throughout history as one olive tree. The root of that tree is Abraham. We saw that right at the beginning. In Genesis 12, God started it all off with Abraham. He chose Abraham to be the father of the people of God. Now, what do we mean by the people of God? We mean every man and woman since Abraham who has faith like Abraham. Abraham trusted in God's work and not his own. The people of God are all those Jews and Gentiles who share Abraham's faith. They are the spiritual descendants of Abraham. He was the root they're the tree. Now in the Old Testament, the majority of God's people were Jews. But there were a few non-Jews included as well. One example would be Rahab, the prostitute from Jericho, who put her trust in the God of Abraham. And it's true that in the Old Testament, not all Jews were included in the people of God. Some of Abraham's physical descendants did not share Abraham's faith. They were born into the nation of Israel, but they were not part of God's people. Still, in the Old Testament, God's people consisted mainly of men and women from a Jewish background. That was also true in the very early days of the New Testament. When Jesus came... Faith in God was shown by putting your trust in Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. And the first Christians were all Jews. But that very quickly changed. The situation when Paul's writing is that the majority of Jews are rejecting Christ. They're not part of God's people. But the first thing we need to be clear about is there is one tree. 
one people of God. And as Paul speaks about that over in Galatians, he's able to say, in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In Ephesians, we read it earlier, Paul says, in Christ God has created one new humanity out of Jews and Gentiles. The New Testament says this so many times we can't miss it. In Christ, your human ancestry doesn't matter. But, here in Romans 11, Paul points out the simple fact that the one tree has two kinds of branches. Some branches have a physical connection to the root because they're physical descendants of Abraham. Paul calls those Natural branches. Then there are contrary to nature branches. Men and women who belong to the people of God, they're full members, they're heirs of all God's promises. They are genuinely and truly children of Abraham. They are his offspring in the way that truly matters. They share his faith in God but they have no physical connection to Abraham. They descend from a wild olive tree. Those are the Gentile Christians. Well, we might say, so what? If physical descent from Abraham isn't what truly matters, why does Paul even mention it? He mentions it to bring some humility to us Gentiles. And to point to some hope for the Jews. So now that we have this picture in our minds, let's read it again from the middle of verse 16. This probably just flew by the first time we read it. Paul says, If the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive, should have been grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief. And you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant. But tremble, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you. Provided that you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? In Paul's day and in our day, the majority of Jews are broken off branches. They're physical descendants of Abraham, but they're not part of God's people. They're not spiritual children of Abraham. 
They don't share his faith. But Paul says to us Gentiles, they were broken off because of unbelief and you stand by faith. So don't be arrogant, but tremble before God. Don't fall into the same disobedience and obstinacy Israel fell into. Don't start thinking you're wiser and more deserving than others are. Don't start trusting in your background or your own effort. Put all your trust in God's work through Jesus Christ. Gentiles have no automatic place in God's people either. Being English doesn't mean you're in. Being a churchgoer doesn't mean you're in. Being christened didn't get you in. The illustration of the olive tree means humility for the Gentiles and hope for the Jews. If God can graft us into his tree, who came from a wild olive tree, who started life with no physical connection to Abraham, can't God also graft in those who do have a physical connection to Abraham? And in fact, Paul says, that's what God is going to do. Back in verse 16, he said the Jews have a part to play in God's plan. Now, in verses 25 to 32, Paul tells us about God's plans. He explains the mystery of God's mercy. Gentiles and Jews. Verse 25 should really begin with the word for. Paul is following straight on from verse 24. He's telling us the grafting in of the Jews isn't just a possibility. It's actually going to happen. Not in some special way, but in the only way it can happen. By Jews putting their faith in Christ. Verse 25 begins, For I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters. When the New Testament talks about a mystery, it means something that used to be a mystery, but God has now made it clear. It's no longer a mystery. So what is the mystery Paul is going to tell us about? It's the mystery of how God will bless all peoples on earth. That's what he promised Abraham. And we know true blessing means belonging to God's people, sharing Abraham's faith. But as Paul is writing, it looks like the Jews are excluded from God's blessing. And so Paul explains the mystery of what God's doing. Verse 25. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. The general picture here is one that's already been sketched out in verses 1 to 15. Sorry, verse 11 to 15. We looked at it last week. Israel was hardened so that the preachers of the gospel would be forced beyond Israel. The Jews' rejection of Jesus was what prompted Paul and his co-workers to take their message outside of the synagogue. 
to non-Jews. The hardening of Israel served the purpose of taking God's salvation to the Gentiles. And that will ultimately serve the purpose of making Israel envious. So that she humbles herself and receives God's salvation through faith in Christ. God has not excluded the Jews from his mercy and blessing. The present hardening of the Jews is not final. In the future it will end and many Jews will be saved. That's the message here. But we need to think about some of the details. In verse 25, Paul says Israel's hardening will continue until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. Then in verse 26, he says, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. So what does Paul mean by the full number of the Gentiles And what does he mean by all Israel? Does he mean every single Gentile is going to be saved? And then every single Israelite is going to be saved? I don't think so. For one thing, in Paul's own day and ever since, Gentiles and Jews keep dying without trusting Christ. Every single Jew and Gentile is not going to be saved. Paul is talking here about the primary focus of God's mercy. Now his mercy is being poured out mainly on Gentiles. They're the ones coming into the kingdom. But in the future, the primary focus of God's mercy will change. The Jews will become envious of the Gentiles and they'll turn to Christ themselves. Will every single last one of them turn to Christ? Is that what all Israel means in verse 26? Well, I mentioned just a moment ago, Paul can't mean every single Israelite. Millions have already died outside of Christ. It makes sense to take this as a majority of Israelites. The believing minority that we see today in Israel will swell to a majority. And in fact, the Bible often uses the words all Israel in exactly that way to refer to a majority of Israel. I'll give you just one example. In the book of Numbers, we're told that all Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. But then we're told Joshua and Caleb supported Moses and Aaron. Obviously, the point was, the majority of Israel grumbled. But not every single last one of them. I think Paul is using all Israel in the same way here. Then in verses 26 and 27, Paul quotes from the Old Testament to back up his point. Jacob is another way of referring to Israel. God promised long ago to turn godlessness away from Israel. And he will keep his promise. Yes, Paul says in verse 28, at the moment, the Israelites are enemies of the gospel. But in God's plan, that's for your sake, you Gentiles. So you can benefit from God's way of salvation. But, 
the Jews are still loved on account of the patriarchs. That's a reference to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. God was not forced to show mercy to the patriarchs. But he chose to. And he's also chosen to include their physical descendants in his future plans. Not by the back door. Not apart from Christ. But through Christ. Look again how Paul sums up God's purposes for Jews and Gentiles in verse 30. Just as you, Gentiles who were at one time disobedient to God, have now received mercy as a result of their Jewish disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone, Jews and Gentiles, over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. This, in fact, is exactly what we heard back in chapter 3. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all, both groups, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. In that part of the letter, Paul was showing that Jews have no advantage compared to Gentiles. Here in chapter 11, he's telling us Jews have no disadvantage compared to Gentiles. God is going to show them mercy too. Through the same Messiah they've been rejecting for 2,000 years. God did not have to choose Abraham 4,000 years ago. Abraham didn't deserve to be chosen. After Jesus' resurrection, God didn't have to bring Gentiles into his people. We didn't deserve to be brought in. And God didn't have to commit to bring Israelites in at some future point. They don't deserve it. All God's saving actions come from his grace. Every time he reaches out to save, he's reaching out to disobedient, obstinate people. It is part of God's glory that he has mercy on whom he chooses to have mercy. And throughout history, God has specialized in showing mercy to the least likely candidate. To Jacob, the secondborn instead of Esau, the firstborn. To David, the least of all Jesse's sons. To Gentiles like us, with no natural connection to Abraham. So isn't it just like our God to promise future mercy to the Jews? to those scattered people, so often almost wiped out by their enemies, so often homeless. Isn't it just like our God 
to promise mercy to those who handed his son over to be crucified. Yes, it's true, he died for the sin of us all. But isn't it just like the God of grace to promise mercy to those who told Pilate his blood be on us and on our children? When we started looking at Romans 9 to 11, we said these chapters are as close as the Bible comes to explaining the ways of God to us. And so now at the end of these chapters, how are we to respond to what we've heard? Surely the most appropriate response is worship. That's how Paul responds. Look again at verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgment. And his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Surely, even if we are baffled by some things in Romans 9 to 11, and maybe we still are, but even if we are baffled by some of it, surely these chapters have enlarged our view of God. Surely they've shown us how limited our own perspective is and how complete God's perspective is. Surely we come away from these chapters with greater confidence in him. Greater reason to trust our lives to him. And greater reason to give thanks to him. He calls rebellious Jews and rebellious Gentiles into one people of God. Bought by Christ's blood. And promised an eternity of blessing. He is king of the universe. He's lord of history. And he's worthy.